was last week, love is patient the week before. This morning, love is not jealous. And uh, some of your translations will have a different word there. But let's think about it just a minute because here we have the translation that love is not jealous. How can love not be jealous since we know our God is a jealous God? So as you think about that, think about the context where God tells you he is jealous and uh, it'll start making sense. Let's look at the uh, uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You don't have to go very far there. The second commandment deals with God's jealousy. And it gives us a context for understanding love is not jealous. So let me read Exodus 20, uh, first uh, four or five verses. Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, as, as We'll just stop right there. As you think about that, what's just transpired for the people of God during this time, they have been bought, literally, purchased, uh, just as we are purchased by Christ's blood. These people who were bondage in Egypt, who were owned by Egypt, God says, no, I'm going to own you now, and I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And he starts the Ten Commandments that way, saying, because of who I am, because I'm your sovereign redeemer who has has gone to Egypt, purchased you, taken you out, I want you to worship me, first commandment. I don't want you to make idols going back to some other time. I want you to stay faithful to me. I'm going to stay faithful to you. I'm jealous for you. I have now purchased you. You are mine. You are rightfully mine. For you to give yourself to anyone else would be unfaithfulness. It would be unrighteousness. It would be wrong. I'm jealous to see that doesn't happen. He says, and you can count on it. So you begin to understand jealousy has two contexts. It can be a righteous jealousy, wanting that which is rightfully yours, It can be an unrighteous jealousy, wanting something that you don't deserve, that is not yours. God only has a righteous jealousy. He only wants what is rightfully His. When you get into 1 Corinthians 13, it says love is not jealous. God expects us to read our Bibles and to to know His language and to understand as we get there what He's talking about. Love is not unrighteously jealous it's it's there's a sense in which you can't really love if you're not jealous Uh, jealousy involves a hot passion for what is right it can be a hot passion for what's wrong but if you rightfully love someone you're jealous for the covenantal relationship that you've made with them in other words it's right for me to be jealous for my wife 
It's wrong for me to be jealous for your, your wife. There's a right, righteous jealousy. There's an unrighteous jealousy. Now think about the context in 1 Corinthians 13. What were the people of God doing, doing in Corinth? All of chapter 12 is dealing with it. Chapter 13 is the solution. Chapter 14 is kind of the application. Chapter 12, they said, I see this person over here has got these gifts. And y'all exalt them because they've got gifts. I want those gifts. Wrong kind of jealousy. I want what somebody else has got. Because if I can get it, then that exalts me. And Paul starts talking about the gifts in chapter 12. He says, everybody here has got a gift. You've been sovereignly given gifts by the Holy Spirit. All of the gifts are for the common good. We need all of them. We can't all just go desiring this gift and expect us to be who we need to be. He says, yes, you should, there are greater gifts. You should desire greater gifts. But you need to, to embrace the gift you've got. And you need to embrace others with their gifts. And even see that some people who have lesser gifts are really more important than you. That's what Paul's dealing with. He says the solution, he says the solution is love. Y'all have got to learn to love one another. So when he says love is not jealous, he's talking about this unrighteous jealousy. Wanting something, jealous for something that's not rightfully yours. Love is not jealous in that way. You, if you've got the King James, if you've got the NIV, they've avoided the confusion by inserting the word envy where the literal word for jealousy is. So you have love is not envious. Well, envy works. It fits. Uh, it's a great synonym for what's going on here. It's not the literal word, but it's a great, uh, great word. Great, it's still a good translation uh, because envy is also a neutral word. You can be righteously envious for your spouse and unrighteous for someone else's. So... It's, it's, it really depends more on the object of your lust, your passion, more than the, the presence of desire, passion, lust in your heart. You should lust after what's right, what's good, what's honorable, um, and not what's, what's not. So uh, that's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says love is not jealous. If you like Envious. I'm gonna. You'll be seeing me use them uh, interchangeably. Love is not envious. It's not unrighteously jealous. It's not seeking passionately seeking uh, after that which is not rightfully ours. Uh, in the context, as you think through, what is God? How has God gifted you? What has God given you to be a good lover? To love well. You've got to grow in contentment with God's design, purpose, gifts for you. Um, if you don't, you end up with a problem, the prob all the problems of envy, all the problems of unrighteous jealousy. It's easy to be envious. We look around the room and we say, I want what you, what you have. You know, I, I want your house, I want your job, I want your car, I want your spouse, I want your family, I want your wealth, I want your recreation. I, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on at times. that We see something, we want something. 
love's not that way. Love is being rooted in, in, a, in an understanding that God doesn't give me everything. And he doesn't want me to have everything. He wants for me to have particular things that fit my calling that are good for the church. And if I don't get that, the whole church gets disruptive. And there are problems. I've, I've listed five. There's the problem of disrespect, disorder, disdain, distress, digression. Let me just run through those quickly. Uh, look at disrespect. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. James chapter 3. How much of this is? That's pretty small, right? Can you, can you read that? If you, we have paper bulletins out there, and that, this is just off of that. So if you pick up your own bulletin, we're, we've kind of quit ushering for a while during this uh, pandemic. Um, but paper bulletins are there you can pick up. And then uh, we're trying to put the outlines up, but uh, I uh, typed that pretty small. Uh, James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, so lie against the truth. Let me stop there a minute. There's a good uh, description. Bitter jealousy. It's like unrighteous jealousy. So there's nothing wrong with being jealous if it's righteous. But do you have a bitter jealousy? And the bitterness that's really going on here is a lack of respect for the way God made them. The, God, the way God made us. Do, do you get bitter sometimes that God didn't give you the life you wanted? That it's, you don't have what some other people have? Well, that bitterness towards God is really a disrespect. That's what I mean by the problem of disrespect. It's like a slap in God's face that God didn't treat you the way you think you should be treated and not understanding God's great desire to give you everything you ever needed. Uh, Romans 8.32, uh, you've probably heard me say, say before, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and I'll just read it, it just comes to me now. Romans 8.32 says, uh, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God... You know, just think that through. If God cared enough for you to give you Jesus, how will He not, with Jesus, give you everything you need to live in Jesus? I mean, He'd be shooting Himself in the foot if He didn't do that. How will He not also give you everything you possibly could need to live life in Christ? If you have a bitter jealousy for more than that, it's disrespectful towards God. Jealousy is not something, uh, unrighteous jealousy, it's not something the Christian wants, desires. It's something we quickly repent of and move away from because we know it's so disrespectful to the God who has made us. Uh, stay in there in James. I already lost my place. Uh, think think uh, through the next one. Not only disrespect, but disorder. James chapter 3, verse 16. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition. See, again, it's just it's, it's because the Hebrews, the Greeks knew that the, the passion, lust, uh, was a neutral term. You find frequently a description to let you know what kind we're talking about. It's it's not just jealousy. It's bitter jealousy. It's not just jealousy. It's selfish, ambitious jealousy. And I say it leads to disorder because um, it's, it, it promotes an individualism. When you're selfish, you're thinking about one person, you, instead of, again, the whole church or the whole family or the whole team, when you're supposed to be functioning as a team and you start functioning as an individual, it creates disorder. People aren't sure, are you helping me or hurting me here? Your selfishness destroys that community that we need for one another. Jealousy does that, an unrighteous jealousy, uh, envy. It destroys the order that God's designed for us all. Uh, it also creates disdain. Look over in James chapter 4, first few verses. It says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasure that wage war in your members? You lust. See, again, it's a, it's a wrong lust. It's waging war in your members. You lust and, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You see again the context. You're fighting and quarreling and pushing for and lusting after stuff that has not been freely given you by God. That's not what God wants. That's not the kind of love God has designed for us. Um, he's designed for us to be uh, part of His community, getting all that we need from Him. So many times we, we look down on other people uh, because of an unrighteous jealousy. Uh, look down upon their children, look down upon their schools, look down upon their dress. Uh, we, we despise them trying to get, actually get something more than them. That's the problem. A fourth problem, problem with distress. Look at Psalm 112, verse 10. Psalm 112, verse 10. It's a great psalm for a godly family, godly life. And this characteristic is thrown in. Psalm 112, the last verse. The wicked will see it. Basically seeing the godly man and his godly family. The wicked will see it and they will be vexed, stressed out, distressed, will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Now I throw that in for you to see the analogy. Sometimes we, we flame the, the desires of envy and unrighteous jealousy because we want, we want what someone else has and we we think, well, it's not really a lust, it's just ambition. I want it, I'm going for it. And Psalm 112 says, it's not going to get you where you want to go. You're going to get more stress. You're going to be vexed. You're going to be stressed out as a result of that kind of living. Instead of getting the pleasures you think you're going to get, you're going to get more stress and more stress I'm a person who's had a lot of stress lately, so I have to evaluate, you know, 
where's this coming from? Is it coming from, is it self-generated? Am I, am I wanting something God doesn't want for me? Because that's one of the problems that so much of the non-Christians who are, who are living here, they have. They're, they're wanting things God has not designed for them. And it just gives them stress. It's not going to get you the solutions you want. And then the fifth big problem of envy is digression, meaning we're, going, we're walking backwards instead of frontwards. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Titus chapter 3, well, actually verse 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once, so it's talking about this is the way we once were, our past life, our non-Christian life. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. There it is. Enslaved to an unrighteous jealousy and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Clearly throws this unrighteous jealousy or this envy into the camp of the non-believer, the person who is not yet regenerate. So if you see yourself with this, you say, wait a minute, that's, that's the unregenerate lifestyle. Love, the Christian love is not that. 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about a love that is entirely godly. This is not something the non-Christian can produce. So in each characteristic, I'm looking for what's the distinguishing parts here that distinguish stuff like patience and kindness and envy. What distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian? Because God has given us this instruction to teach us how to have a Christian, distinctly Christian love. And here he clearly says, if you're unrighteously jealous, if you are envious of others and their stuff, you're just emulating the non-Christian lifestyle that leads to great stress and destruction. Why would you do that? That's not where we want to go. So what's the solution? As you look at all the problems of uh, envy, you see they all come down to one thing, discontentment. Discontentment. And so if the real core of the problem is discontentment, then the solution would be a biblical contentment. So that's where I want us to go, to stop, to kill, to destroy the wrong envy that's in our lives. The way to destroy it once and for all is to gain a strong biblical contentment. So, and the, the, the key passage on contentment, perhaps, in the Bible that, that you would already know is Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13. So let's start there. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Passage on contentment. I'll begin reading verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever my circumstances. I know how to get along 
with humble means, basically having nothing, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. All right, let's think about that for a minute. First of all, let's think through just this situation that Paul's in. He makes it clear. What's the situation that's necessary for you to be content? And he makes it clear any situation. So it doesn't matter whether you're poor or have nothing or whether you're rich and have everything. He says, anything in between. He says, I've learned I can be content in any and all circumstances. So uh, erase the lie that Satan's been telling you. You could just be content if you had that boat. You could just be content if you had another job. You could just, you could really be content if you had another spouse or you had somebody else's kids, you know, whatever, somebody else's parents. That's the lie. Paul says, no, no, you could be content in any circumstance, in every circumstance, in all circumstances. You don't have to change the circumstances to gain contentment. This is something you learn in your present situation. I love the illustration. Picture two cows. Picture grass, green grass. Picture a fence. You know, it's running right down here. This, this is the north. This is the south. The sun comes right over here. So I got a fence that's running east to west. And I got a cow in the north. And what's he doing? He's sticking his head through the fence to eat the grass in the south. And the other cow in the south pasture sticking his head through the fence to eat the grass in the north. And there's one caption on this little cartoon. What is it? Discontentment. It's a great illustration that we think the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And we're like those cows. So we stick our head through and try to taste what somebody else has. I would be better off if I could taste that. And you have both cows doing it. Why can't they just be content right where they are? Contentment is not gained by changing fences, tearing down the fence or changing pastures. Contentment is gained in the circumstances you are currently in. What's the source? How do you get content right where you are? Look at verse 13. The source is in Christ. In Christ. I can do all things you have probably heard most often. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. If you've got an electronic device, a Bible, you may not have marginal notes, depending on your, how good your Bible software is. If you've got a paper copy like me, look at your marginal note. Almost always you have a marginal note when they've uh, taken out the literal word and they've inserted something. Well, they've done that here. So you have the marginal note so that it keeps the translators honest and you get a literal translation. And when you look at the marginal note, there it is in mine, instead of the word through, you have a little one probably beside it. You look up what one refers to and it says in. Literally, it's in. I can do all things in 
Christ, literally in Christ, who strengthens me. Now think about the difference between being in Christ and being able to do all things through Christ. First of all, what, what things can we do? Um, it's pretty clear. He says, I can do all things. He says, I can do most things. It's interesting to me, a lot of people who quote this, I can do all things through Christ. Well, that's kind of funny to me because I don't see you do all things through Christ. I only see you do some things through Christ. And really have contentment. And also the context, what kind of, in, in, in what kind of condition is Paul in when he is saying, I can do all things? He says, I can do all things when I'm suffering, when I'm poor, when I'm sick, when I'm persecuted, when I'm hurting. Now, if I am persecuted, sick, suffering, hurting, I'm not likely to win the, the game with a touchdown. Am I? Is that what he's talking about? This is not a verse for our athletes, you know, to, to plaster. I could, I could win because I can do all things through Christ. He strengthens me. That's when you normally hear it. Well, it says you can do what he's talking about here when you're sick in bed. And losing life. Would you quote that verse then for me? Uh, no, that's not the way I understand it. Well, that's the way it's in the Bible. Now, when you stop to think, how can I do all things? Not most things, not some things, but all things. I can do all things in Christ. Now, think about what in Christ is talking about. There's this life that's in Christ, meaning you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness. You are now in the kingdom of Christ. And you're under His sovereignty. You're under His care. You're under His direction. You're under His calling. He has called you to a specific responsibility in the body of Christ. Context of 1 Corinthians. He has given you the gifts of His Spirit so that you can encourage and build up the body of Christ. And regardless of your circumstance, whether you're in a bed, whether you've got the strength to run a marathon, you can do all of what Christ has given you in Him for the church, always, all the time. I've learned that if, if, if I dwell in what Christ has called me to do, and I do, I wake up and say, God, you are my Lord, not just my Savior. You're my Lord. You direct you show me what it is you want me to do today. I will do it. I found, Paul says he has found, that I have everything I need to do everything God has called me to do. So I can do it. I can do all of it in Christ. Because Christ would be foolish to call me to do something he doesn't equip me to do. So he equips me. And He gifts me to do all that He has called me for. Can I just be content with that? That if I can just learn what it is that God has designed for me in Christ, my calling, and I follow through with that, find that I always have sufficiency for the callings that God has given me. Doesn't mean I lose any ambition. Say, man, if... Some people say, if you, if you say it that way, people will just quit being ambitious for one more thing. No, 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 no. 
Because if I am called for one more thing, I will be equipped for one more thing, and I will realize I have to go for it, that one more thing. Because that's what God's called me to do. I must do it or I die. Paul says, woe is me if I preach not. He said, I was called to preach. I'm pretty good at it, Paul said. I'm pretty good at planting churches. I must do it. Remember Paul's situation in Philippians. You'd have to go back to chapter 1. Paul says, I am in prison. I am old. What I really want to do right now is just die. And I've, 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 I've already checked it out. It's a whole lot better where I'm going than where I am. He says, I would be a whole lot better off. It will be a gain. Check. A plus for me to die. But Paul says, the more I pray about it, the more God burdens me with you guys, the Philippians. And so it's of advantage to me to continue my calling. And so I'm writing to you now. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing this ministry of preaching and teaching to you Philippians because that's my calling. And I have found even if the, I'm in prison and even if I'm malnourished and even if I'm not person to person, I can still fulfill my calling. I have all the strength I need for what it is I need to do. I had this conversation with my dad just a few weeks ago. My dad's 93 this Saturday. And he says, David, I just want to catch this COVID thing and get to heaven. I said, I understand. Life is isolated and miserable for you right now. I said, but you've lost your vision. You're going to have to figure it out. I said, somehow you've got to figure out why God has you here. What is his calling for you? I said, maybe it's just to pray for your friends. Maybe it's your Bible study. Maybe he really needs one more worshiper right on earth right now. I said, how's your Bible reading? How is your prayer time? And he, he said, it's not been what it should be. I said, okay, well, you've got to get it back. I said, start writing down a list of people you're praying for. Put me on that list. Put your friends on that list. Put your family on that list. Start praying. Start reading your Bible. You have a calling. And since you have a calling at 93, you have to fulfill it. And you will have all the strength you need if you stay in Christ to do what it is God has called you to do. He has given you this. In other words, i got to be content. Yeah. See, that's the solution. You're lusting. You're, you're jealous for something else outside the will of God. Come back to your design and your calling. What has God called you to do? Um, so much of education today it eliminates calling. I tell people this all the time. I said, uh, you know, I, I want to send my kid to this school or that school or wherever. And I said, why? Well, because I sat them down and I told them, you know, they, if they want to they have the kind of life we have, they got to get a good job and a good career. And that's, if I think they could do this job and that career. Why, why that job? Why that? Because that's where the money is. Okay, I'm not hearing anything in this conversation about what is your son or daughter called to do? What do you mean called? God is our creator. He forms us in our mother's wombs. He knows our first day and our last day. He's designed us to be on this earth in a particular place at a particular time for a particular reason. 
And He will strengthen us to do our callings during this time. If you want strength and contentment to do what you're called to do in every circumstance, you have to be in your calling. Some of us are called to be just good dads. And we need to finance that calling. Yes. But we don't want to finance it to the degree, to the degree we stop being good dads. Because the job requires us to leave dadhood for the job. In other words, there's too many people, they're not Satan's lie again. Don't seek a calling, seek a fortune. How many people go after the job to make a fortune, to make a good living, instead of to fulfill a calling? No, you, you finance the calling, but the calling is primary. Some of you are called to be a good mother. Some of you are called to be grandparents, great-grandparents. Some of you are called to be a great engineer, a great scientist, a great doctor. Yes, all of these callings are necessary. But you see, we're not all called for the same thing. If we start seeking fortune, we only go after the two, three careers where the money's at. And there's so many callings. They really don't make much. But they're so important. Ben, you go back to 1 Corinthians 12, and it says, and, and those things that you don't think are very becoming actually become the most important. Because those people are fulfilling a calling. And when you get to heaven, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Really proud of you for making that touchdown. Is that what he's going to say? Good and faithful servant. You did just what your Lord asked you to do. You fulfilled a calling. You know, I'm not going to get to heaven convinced of it. And God's going to say, David, you know, I've had people ask me this. Why aren't you a little bit more like Billy Graham? I'm not going to get to heaven and God say, David, why, why weren't you a little bit more like Billy Graham? Why weren't you a little bit more like Moses? Why weren't you a little bit more like Mother Teresa? Why? Because God's going to say, David, I didn't make you to be Moses. I made Moses to be Moses. I didn't make you to be Billy Graham. I made Billy Graham to be Billy Graham. I didn't make you to be Mother Teresa. David, why didn't you just do you? I made you to be you. I gifted you. I called you. And I need you to do what I've called you to do. And if you have done what I've called you to do, well done, good and faithful servant. Can we be content with that? That's what Paul learned. Paul wasn't a career missionary. I mean, he went to school to be a teacher. He became an enforcer, a persecutor. God met him on the Damascus Road said, that's done. New calling. And Paul's career changed. And there were times he had everything where the kings welcomed him and gave him the palace. And other times he was shipwrecked, lost all his clothes, about died, was stoned. And he was content? Yeah. He wasn't jealous for another life? No. Because he understood his calling. 
He understood love, what God wanted for him. We've got to get that too. So let's get back to Philippians uh, chapter 3. I've learned the secret. The secret, verse 12, of the, how to be content in all these circumstances. Um, you want to know the secret. Secret's a great word, isn't it? I found it in the scripture. You want to find it uh, another place. Look at Psalm 25, verses 12 through 15. I love this, uh, this passage because of the description that's there. Let me, let me look, at, look it up real quick. Psalm 25, 12 through 15. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Here's the word, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Now, think about what, what is the secret of the Lord. It's, again, you have a little marginal note. Uh, there, the counsel of the Lord. The secret is the counsel, the direction of the Lord. And the psalmist is saying I, that, that I've learned that the man who fears the Lord finds that the Lord instructs the servant. And the Lord instructs the servant, or he counsels him, or he gives him the secret to his life, he gives him his calling. He lets him know this is why you are on earth. That's a pretty cool secret. To know from the designer why I am here. And that's God said, that's what I do for my people. I let them know that. And I, I let them know that by directing them through the word of God, through the people of God, through worship of God, through the sacraments of God. God just begins to counsel us and direct us. And over and over again, we begin to hear, oh, I'm part of the body of Christ. I am now in Christ, in Christ, in his kingdom, in his church. My significance begins to revolve around being in Christ. So what's the secret? The secret is that, or the counsel, the instruction is that God gives us everything we need for the callings that are ours. That's the secret. God gives us all we need to do whatever it is in any circumstance that he's called us to do. We have a sufficiency to do all God has called us to do, and that's enough. Paul says, I've learned that. Whether I'm shipwrecked, whether I'm fully clothed, prosperous, whether I'm naked, whether I'm being stoned, I got what I need. I've got Christ. I am in Christ. And in Christ, I can do all I need to do. Because that's all I need to do. It's what I'm called to do in Christ. Now you understand the, the verse. Now it makes sense. All things, not most things, not some things, not just athletic things. All things. Bad times are good times. And Paul says, if you get that, you're not running for fortunes. You're running after a calling. And that calling enables you to find purpose and significance and strength and all-sufficiency 
And it enables you to come together weekly and worship and praise and thank Him. Because another week in His calling, you have succeeded. It's, you go from win to win. You go from grace to grace. How wonderful is that? So it doesn't lead to, lead to distress. It doesn't lead to more and more stress. It, 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 it leads to more joy. Philippians is the letter of joy. Paul talks about joy in every chapter. So much joy when you understand to quit doing life as a day-to-day lust for something outside your calling. But you live day-to-day in your calling, in Christ. And life becomes thrilling. Solution of contentment, I put down two things to, to think through. Two things, and I, I will gain contentment. To live, number one, to live surrendered to my divine calling. Of course, you need to do some evaluation. What has God specifically called me to do? And don't, don't stray away from just some obvious. He gave you a particular gender to be a male or a female. He may be calling you to be a dad or a mom or a granddad, or a grandma, and those are significance for God's plan. And we have diminished the significance of that. We've literally diminished the significance of women by removing them from the motherhood role in our, uh, in our day. Whereas we used to honor and defend them because they were God's chosen vessel of life. They only, of, of the genders, have that function. And it is of such high value that we must exalt and honor the vessels of life. And we must see that as a glorious calling to be continue uh, building God's kingdom in His church. But anyway, to be content, the first rule, you've got to learn, I must surrender my life to divine calling. I've got to live life in Christ instead of living in this world. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be so absorbed of, of, this, of this world that I only live for this world. But I live to be in Christ. Surrender to that calling. And then this, the second principle is just as easy as I've already been talking about. If the first principle is I must live, surrender to divine calling, the second principle, I've, I've just got to recognize, I've got to understand, I've got to have faith in, trust in, be convicted that God will give me everything I need for my calling. Surrender your life to divine calling and then have faith that God has promised to give us all we need for that calling. If He has given us, Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? We will have everything we need for the divine calling we have received. 1 Corinthians, we're out of time, so I'll just jump to the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Leave you with one verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Catch the last words. How? In Christ. In the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always 
abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your time, your efforts on earth, they are never spent in vain if you are living in Christ. If you're doing what you're doing to fulfill a divine calling, you are given the strength for that, so stay with that, and you will never get to heaven and God say, you blew it. You will get to heaven and God says, I equipped you for what you did. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, you are a jealous God. You want us to get it right. If you've taken the time to purchase us, you're jealous that we live for you and in you. Give us that kind of jealousy. To live surrendered to our divine calling for you. Make our love not jealous. In the sense of wanting other people's gifts. Other people's life. Instead of the one you've given us. Father, turn us from that divisive, destructive way. Turn us back to a sweet contented life in Christ forgive us Lord where we've strayed we are all like sheep and we stray daily have mercy on our souls draw us back to biblical love to our Christ our Lord and Savior surrender to him Father for those in this room that have never truly trusted Christ they've wanted Christ for the things he can bring to the table, but they wanted to just still do their own life. Father, help them to see this morning that doesn't cut it. And that's not the Christian life. And there's always struggles and problems with that way. In Christ alone, they can do all things. We ask, Lord, that you would save them, that you would save them from that stressful, worldly digression of destruction. And draw them to yourself. That they may have the joy we have in Christ. We ask Lord with all our heart. Thank you Father for your word. For the truth, the counsel, the secrets it reveals. We give you praise in Jesus name. Amen.